0: These are The Oldest Stories, online at oldeststories.net. We've seen the city of Uruk go to war with the city of Arata, and in the next episode, we'll take a look at Uruk's most famous king, the mighty Gilgamesh, and his great epic adventure. But now that we have a feel for the people, how they thought and lived, it's time to fill in some hard details. This episode is being written as part of the early episode rewrite that I'm doing, and you may notice that future episodes have a bit spottier sound quality, and a bit less focus in the narrative, but the original recordings start to improve around the time of the Akkadian Empire. One of the consequences of having no real focus when I originally wrote these early episodes is that Sumer just sort of appears, fully formed, out of nowhere. This is, in a sense, a good feeling to have, since the early Sumerians appear to have had almost no concept of history as a series of developments over time. Rather, they appear to have believed that the current level of civilization at whatever time they were living was the level that civilization had been created at by the gods back in the early days. They had stories of older days, and thus they had the idea of history, but that idea was of a static universe beneath eternal gods kings came and went, but the idea of the city was simply inherent in the cosmic order, one of the divine mez, which were the gods' tools in the world. But of course, with the advantage of substantially more recorded history and the modern tools of archaeology, we can tell the story of the origins of the Sumerian civilization from a slightly different perspective. If we really wanted to go hard on the oldest story's theme, I could start the tale at the Big Bang. But we'll instead skip through countless aeons of time and start our story at the end of the last glacial period, or Ice Age, around 10,000 BCE. Humanity in Mesopotamia looks more or less like humanity around the globe at this point. Wandering bands of tribes with control of fire and know how to create stone tools with early dogs following close behind, but Mesopotamia, like a handful of other regions around the world, is about to take the next step forward. As we transition from the year 10,000 BCE to the year 8,000 BCE, we find our nomadic wandering groups are starting to domesticate animals to follow them around goats, pigs, sheep, and early cattle, and they're starting the very first plantings that will transform certain wild plants into the first crops. These include wheat, barley, lentils, peas, chickpeas, flax, and the vegetable called bitter vetch that isn't quite as popular nowadays. At this point, they aren't settling down and planting fields like you imagine proper agriculture to be. Rather, they've noticed that as they move around season to season, they can leave seeds in a place and have plants sprouting up when they return later. And if they religiously sacrifice the very best individual plants to the soil to grow for the next year, thereby selecting the best of each crop for reproduction while consuming the others, pretty soon they've transformed the wild varieties of each of these crops into something a bit more fruitful. Now, all this took quite a while, but it laid the important groundwork for the next developmental step, that of actually settling down. For the next 2,000 years, semi-permanent and occasionally permanent settlements developed, but the next big game-changer will be pottery. Honestly, to put it like that does a bit of disservice to the sheer span of time we're skipping over. These are intellectually and anatomically modern humans living through countless generations. I mean, think of how many things you've done in your life. How long would be your life biography if you wrote it right now? These people were not really less busy or involved than you, though obviously they were materially and educationally much more limited. Still, we could say very little more about them aside from the fact that they now make pots and terracotta figurines of people and animals. The oldest people that we can say anything at all about who were living in the Middle East are called the Halaf culture. This isn't what they called themselves, it's just a name of a tell in Syria, or a little hill, where the first remains were identified traces of the Halaf have been found up and down the Tigris and Euphrates river valleys, though more in the north, and the few things we can say about them mostly concern distinguishing features of their pottery. The sort of archaeology I acknowledge is very important, but I do find it to be profoundly dull, so we're just gonna skip around. Around 6000 BCE, Though, of course, this is far more of a bookmark around which hundreds of years of development are occurring, the Ubayid culture begins to emerge and replace the Halaf. As is usual, we have no way of knowing who these people really were. Was it descendants of the Halaf peoples? Is it just with a new culture? Is it a previously invisible people who borrowed from the Halaf and that innovated on top of it? Whatever the case... They show up in the southern plains of Mesopotamia with their distinctive pottery type and leave a few sites showing the gradual march of the very earliest technologies. They had early pottery wheels and stone tools, but the big jump was that these Ubaids were the ones to figure out how to extend agriculture along the river valleys into areas that received no annual rainfall. At first, This was simply through planting fields very close to the riverways. The idea of extending that waterway by slowly digging irrigation ditches off the main channel would evolve gradually over the prehistoric period. But with the development of river-fed agriculture as opposed to the northern rain-fed agriculture sometime around the year 5,500 BCE, the big jump into urbanization becomes possible. This takes place most concretely at the city of Eridu, a site which has a decent claim for being the first major city in the Near East. This shouldn't be overstated. There have been permanent settlements for quite some time in many places and Eridu, in fact, will be abandoned and outstripped at various points in history. But already by 5000 BCE, we see many of the key elements that we think of when we think of cities mud brick buildings in close proximity fostered trade and craft industries. Larger buildings likely housed palaces, which had their own small economies. And perhaps most significantly, by 5,300, archaeologists can already see traces of the very first great temple of Eridu, the at this early date, it measures no larger than 12 by 15 feet with a small altar for animal sacrifice atop a platform. But over the millennium, it'll be rebuilt and improved as one of the most prestigious and venerable temples in Sumer. The archaeological style set in Eridu would, in its fundamentals, remain essentially unchanged in the region for millennia. I mean, the details would change with the fashion, but at the core, mud bricks would be formed in molds, then left out in the sun to bake. In the early period, these bricks tended towards larger sizes, perhaps the size of a modern shoebox or a bit bigger. And as time went on and labor became more abundant, smaller bricks were increasingly preferred, getting down to about the size of a modern red brick that you might see in a modern house. In the arid climate, these buildings could stand for decades or even centuries, depending on how well they were built and how much they were maintained, and even a modest home could have two or three stories with this durable mud brick. The structures were usually regular rectangles, or sometimes more complicated versions of a real basic rectangular pattern, just anything that had nice 90-degree angles. All this could be decorated by paint, or by hanging carpets on the walls, or even terracotta mosaics and fancier structures. But most people may have left it just the attractive sandy orange for the common run of houses. Once the settled farmers had established themselves around the earliest core of the Abzu Temple, a three-part economy quickly established itself. Being located among the swamp, right at the edge of where the Euphrates River meets the Persian Gulf, there was a variety of year-round fishing available, both on the river and in the Gulf, as well as in the brackish median. Additionally, with the flat wilderness so nearby, the nomadic pastoralists, who at this point still made up the majority of the region's population, settled down either partly or completely, with a third of the ancient city given over to structures that may have been meant to accommodate a mixed human and animal population. It's speculated that the fishermen, natives of the swamp, are the ancestors of the later Sumerians, the nomad herders are the very earliest Semitic peoples, and the agriculturalists of early Eridu are the Ubaid people, but this hypothesis, as neat as it is, may be a bit too convenient. For one, it isn't at all clear whether the Ubaid people were or were not separate from either the Sumerians or the Semites. For another, it remains to be clearly demonstrated if ethnic and professional lines were so clearly delineated. However, of all the three groups, it's the fishermen that are the most significant over the next thousand years. Fully wooden boats made of planks from big cedar wood trees like the Egyptians would build are somewhat rare in this very early period in Mesopotamia, though it isn't beyond the realm of possibility that a temple and palace at Eridu could command the construction of decently sized wooden ships, even at this early stage. However, most commonly, the boats were made of woven reed bundles, and those larger than a personal fishing canoe would have been coated with bitumen to add solidity and waterproofing. Stepping up from that, a boat made from a frame of sticks lashed together with reed and bitumen, or perhaps a layer of bark, could produce a ship large enough to transport at least a few cartloads of goods, if not more, and it was capable of using sail and currents to travel all the way up the Tigris and Euphrates river systems. There's even indications of prehistoric maritime trade throughout the Persian Gulf all the way to the Strait of Hormuz. Traveling the open sea is probably the more impressive technical achievement, but what will have an impact on history over the next millennium is the fact that these fishermen quickly realize that they can load up their little boats and sail all the way upriver to modern Turkey and Syria, trading goods and, more importantly, spreading ideas all the way up and down the two rivers. Halaf culture, which had continued to dominate the north, is now gradually replaced by the Ubaid way of doing things due to this, and the thousand years leading up to 4000 BCE are characterized by what we can now properly think of as the establishment of early civilization. More cities in the style of Eridu are founded, and these cities are ever more elaborate, Someone realizes that the amount of river-adjacent land can be expanded almost indefinitely if people are brought together to dig out canals that effectively expand the river itself, forming the basis of the irrigation networks that will soon become the lifeblood of the region. It's in this period that the ruins of Tel Abada provide us with an example of the oldest building that shows no signs of people living in it a great central structure used for both religious and administrative functions, featuring the tombs of the town's children, as well as, in other rooms, a large number of differentiated and marked clay tokens that were almost certainly the oldest surviving examples of record-keeping. Abada also shows clear evidence of walled-off production areas, multiple pottery kilns set into their own room, suggesting an organized crafting group, Though, whether you personally interpret that as a potter's guild, a pottery company, or a pottery enterprise organized by the local king probably depends more on your politics than the evidence actually available. All this suggests a prosperous and strongly expansionist culture, though not one that was unified in any political sense outside of the tribe or city-state. Cities in the Ubaid style appear all up and down Mesopotamia, and from the common physical materials we can infer strong trade routes already along all these places, giving export markets for the great cities that grew up following 4,000, such as the 130-hectare walled city of Tel Brak, all the way up in the north on a tributary of the Khabur River. But the most significant of these cities would come to be Uruk, only a few dozen miles north of Eridu along the Euphrates. It will be Uruk that gives its name to the entire period of the 3000s BCE, and really gets the whole civilization thing going. There is no clear transition from the Ubaid to the Uruk period. It's mostly a distinction made by later archaeologists. But there is no doubt that, as far as we can tell, the city of Uruk would come to dominate the landscape for a thousand years in a way that later empires would have to work much harder to emulate. The foundation of Uruk's successes have already been laid down by the end of the Ubiad period, but Uruk will manage to do it all much bigger and better. Remember the city of Arata from the first two episodes, located somewhere in the mountains to the northeast and maybe as far away as Afghanistan? That, may have been originally a colony city of Uruk, which is why King and Merkar felt justified in demanding tribute from them. The mighty city of Asher, the city who will come to form one of the greatest empires of the ancient world, Assyria, that also may have been a colony from the pre-literate period. In South Iran, the Elamite civilization may have sprung up from cities founded during the Uruk expansion. And in the very far north end of the Euphrates, well into modern-day Turkey, here too there are signs of Uruk's cultural and economic influence. In contemporary pre-dynastic Egypt, the disunified nobles of Upper Egypt appear to have traded heavily by way of a sea route that skirted the Arabian Peninsula from the Persian Gulf to the Red Sea, and were, for a time, heavily culturally influenced by exotic Mesopotamia. And perhaps even more impressively, the Uruk-era seafarers, in their boat made of reeds and sticks, braved the Indian Ocean to trade luxury goods with the distant Indus Valley civilization, sometimes called the Harappans, who are just beginning to coalesce right now, and who may have taken some of their ideas of civilization from these distant trading partners. Again, we shouldn't think of Uruk as having built a political empire in any of these places, nor was there some central force sending out settlers like at the beginning of a game of civilization. Additionally, it may not have been just the city of Uruk, either. While Uruk appears to have been the most important town of the 4th millennium BCE, southern Mesopotamia in general saw very similar developments, with the major cities of Ur, Kish, Shurapak, and the Holy Temple city of Nippur all developing in similar ways in this period. Despite seeing so many trappings of civilization here, we remain in the pre-literate period and are dependent on archaeology, not history for what we know. For example, we still can't tell if the people occupying these southern Mesopotamian cities, the region which will come to be called Sumer, are actually Sumerian at this point. Many linguists are convinced that the Sumerian language contains a substrate of non-Sumerian loanwords, bits of language taken from the natives who had inhabited the region through the Ubayad period, with the Sumerians arriving relatively late. Others take the Sumerians to have been one of a number of groups in this region since a time immemorial, whatever that happens to be which happened to take hegemonic control over the culture and economy, likely during this Uruk period. Yet others think the Sumerians are the same as the Ubiads, and that evidence to the contrary is weak and circumstantial. For myself, I run a history show, not an archaeology show, and so I have the luxury of saying that it doesn't really matter in moving on. The bottom line is that by the year 3000, We have a Sumerian civilization flourishing in Sumer, just in time for the invention of writing. So here we are, at the year 3000 BCE, 5,000 years before the present day, and civilization is flourishing. Living in Sumer, we have an abundance of food, though it's mostly barley with a bit of fish and dairy to supplement it. For construction, we can build pretty much anything we want out of reeds and mud, and are already creating impressive cities out of this. City walls completely encircle huge areas, keeping the main part of a city safe from the ceaseless warfare that has been ceaseless through both the prehistoric and historic periods. The raised mastaba structures that house the great temples are already ancient, and over generations are still being built up into the massive ziggurats that will come to dominate the skyline of each major city. The town itself is crisscrossed with major roadways and canals, both of which transport people and goods, the latter ensuring that you don't have to go too far to dump sewage or get clean water. And you're ruled over by a priest-king, an ensi, because the institution of the temple is the core social unit of the city-state and has a huge influence in governing at this early period. That ensi, as well as the proper priests of the temple and the non-religious aristocrats who rule over the city, have more than they could possibly consume themselves. Even after spending their excess barley on servants and slaves to provide any services they can imagine, they still have seemingly little They still have seemingly limitless pottery, reeds, and grain. You see, Sumer in these days is some of the most astonishingly fertile farmland in the world. Endless sunshine is a given. The region is naturally a desert. And with the extensive canal networks, unlimited water can be delivered anywhere that the government has chosen to improve with access to the waterways. Perhaps most importantly, the mighty waterways themselves bring down silt from the rich mountains of Anatolia and the Caucasus, fertilizing the soil about as well as some modern industrial techniques. This has created a massive food surplus, which over the generations has created a massive labor surplus. Take these people, have them dig out mud and throw clay, and you have the very first mass-produced industrial good, the standardized clay pots of the Uruk period. But if you're one of these nobles, barley and pots only gets you so far in life. What you need to do is load up some ships, or fill up donkey-driven four-wheeled carts, and distribute that pottery and barley as widely as possible. In this way, by creating a trade network that spanned from Egypt to Anatolia to India and Afghanistan, and possibly even further that these elites were able to obtain for themselves all the precious metals they needed, and to obtain the critically important bronze, which defined the tools and weapons of the entire Bronze Age. Not a single ounce of either copper or tin was native to Mesopotamia, despite the fact that by the Uruk period, we're well into the very early Bronze Age. But all of this requires a great deal of organization. And it's out of that organization that writing was invented. The Sumerians themselves gave credit to the goddess Nisaba for the invention of writing, though, as we have seen, Sumerian myth was far from a unified single corpus, and many things from the creation of writing to the creation of the world were told in different ways in different stories. With the Nisaba myth, however the Sumerians may have been pretty close to the mark. You see, in this explanation, the goddess Nisaba, who rules over grain and the harvest, provided Sumer with a great abundance of food every year because she was just that nice and the Sumerians were good and devout every year. She created so much grain, in fact, that it became a problem to count it all. And so she taught the first scribes how to make marks on clay. One mark for each wagon load of grain, or however much. They had their own system of numbers that's a bit complicated. And then a mark for every single load removed, allowing for an early form of accounting to keep track of how much stuff was kept in any given grain warehouse. But then, a wealthy man might own both grain and sheep, and so he applies the method of counting grain to counting sheep. Obviously, he needs to differentiate the grain account from the sheep account. So next to the grain numbers, he draws a little stylized grain stalk, while next to the sheep numbers, he draws a little stylized sheep head. These are the first nouns to be written down, along with mud bricks, pottery items, reeds, and whatever other specific items might need to be counted. From here... Perhaps one day a farmer needed to make a transaction, but couldn't be bothered to go tell the merchant in person what he wanted. And so, he creates a few suggestive little pictures in between the already established grain and pottery characters, suggestive of the idea that farmer will bring some barley if the merchant delivers his pottery. And with this, verbs are recorded into clay. As the vocabulary of pre-writing pictograms expands, the value of recording thoughts on clay expands, leading to a growth in literacy and a growth in the number of things that people just suddenly want to start writing down. As the number of pictograms grows and the specific ones become standardized and simplified across Sumer, since merchants need to all agree which symbol is which for trade to flow smoothly, The process of writing becomes standardized, and we see the foundations only very shortly after writing itself begins of the Eduba scribal schools. The Eduba, as an educational institution, will endure for some three millennia and will be the standard way in which anyone who learns Sumerian or any of the subsequent cuneiform languages becomes literate. The focus is very heavily on the memorization of the few hundred characters in the cuneiform character set. Sumerian, like modern Chinese, is based on the idea of a symbol carrying both a meaning and a word sound. Subsequent languages, like Akkadian and its dialect Babylonian, will morph that character-based system into a character- and sound-based hybrid system, not unlike modern Japanese. And after another thousand or so years, the idea that a character should have an independent meaning and not just a sound will be phased out completely by the Phoenicians of modern-day Lebanon, who will create the first phonetic alphabet. But that is a long, long way away. For us, in the year 3000 BCE, we're just happy that we now have a school that can educate a dedicated scribal class, men who will attach themselves to every industry, religious institution, and governmental apparatus, and who will finally begin providing us the sort of records that constitute the beginning of proper history. Around this time, uruk's dominance over Sumer begins to rise and fall with the centuries. Indeed, it was probably rising and falling before, but we have no way of knowing the intimate details of political history before this time. The historical persons of Enmerkar, Lugalbanda, and even King Gilgamesh are in fact attested around this time in very fragmentary mentions. The legends of these men would be written down only a century or two later by some estimates, though some have it substantially later indeed. Though, of course, the Gilgamesh epic would grow independently for hundreds of years after that. But though these are some of the earliest names we have in Sumerian history, the Mesopotamians themselves already had a sense of the great antiquity they'd inherited. The principal source for the next period of history, running from about 3,000 to 2,300, called the Early Dynastic Period, is the Sumerian Kings List, and the fragments of information we have about the men who appear there. In some places, we also have been lucky enough to find caches of business receipts, clay tablets, making records of various transactions between individuals which make up the majority of the written record in Mesopotamia, but are often of only incidental value in establishing the narrative of history. This listing of kings actually puts a pretty significant list of kings in front of the earliest confirmed individuals, So any proper history of Mesopotamia should really start there. In the beginning were the gods and the creation of humanity. The creation myth itself will be covered in an upcoming episode. It turns out that the Mesopotamians would develop a wide variety of origin stories as time went on. But once the world and humanity had been created, the gods finally decide to give the power of kingship over humans to a human a man named Alulim from the oldest city, Eridu. We don't actually have any surviving stories of Alulim, which is a bit surprising, though maybe not surprising given the insane antiquity we're dealing with here. But we do have one about his counselor, Adipa the Wise, whose story will be looked at later. Alulim then rules for 28,800 years. His successor, Alal-Ngar, about whom nothing at all is known, ruled for 36,000 years. All the early kings are like this, with supposed lifespans long enough to make the figures in the book of Genesis look like children. After Alal-Ngar, the gods decreed that kingship should pass to another city, Bad Tibera. After that, kingship's taken over to the city of Larag, then to Zimbir, then to Shuripak. Each of these cities has rulers dominating the entire world, or at least the lower Mesopotamian plain, for tens of thousands of years each. After this comes the Great Flood, which wipes out all life except for a single ark containing one man, his family, and some pairs of animals. After the Flood, the northern city of Kish has a number of kings, though each of these only rules for a few hundred years, not tens of thousands, with the reigns declining gradually over time. At the end of the list of rulers of Kish is the first man we can verify historically, Enma Baragesi, whose name appears on a contemporaneous clay shard that can be seen to this day in the Baghdad Museum. After this came Aga of Kish, another king attested to in the historical record, then the gods decreed that kingship should pass to the city of Uruk. Modern historians debate the extent to which this passing of kingship represents an actual change in regional leadership. It's clear from the more historically attested dynasties that many kings and cities which are presented in sequential order were actually contemporaneous. The aforementioned Aga of Kish, for example, ruled at the same time as King Gilgamesh, or at least, that's what an account of the two leaders meeting in battle would suggest. That said, in later eras, we very much do get a sense of one city coming to dominate the region for a period of a few generations at a time, at which point another city rises up to take the mantle of leadership. And these kings' lists, some of which were composed in their current form quite late, may have simply imputed that historical pattern back into the far more disunified early period. One possibility, based on later practice, is that the ruler who is named is the particular king who holds the most patronage in the holy city of Nippur. Nippur is a bit of a strange case among Mesopotamian cities. It's the holy city of Enlil, king of the gods in this period, and it seems that its status as the seat of the king of the gods gave it a particular sanctity. Throughout the third millennium, every city would have cause to attack just about every other city. Nippur, however, seems to have very rarely, if at all, fallen under siege. There are very few accounts of battles in the vicinity, but they may have been fought well away from the city itself. It seems that Nippur offered its loyalty pretty freely to whoever the dominant power was, offering the blessings of the king of the gods in exchange for protection and patronage. Whichever king was patron over Nippur would often be crowned king of Sumer, and later as king of Sumer and Akkad. This doesn't explain all the inconsistencies in the king's list, but it certainly would be a powerful political dynamic until the fall of Sumer. When kingship moves to Uruk, the reign lengths begin to settle down to plausible lengths. Gilgamesh himself is said to have reigned 126 years, but his immediate successor, Ur-Nungal, ruled for only 30 years, and his grandson, Udal-Kalama, ruled only 15 years. With a With a few exceptions now, we start quite regularly seeing rain links that suggest the early writers of the kings list had actual historical justifications for the numbers they put down. For most of the early dynastic period, however, even these kings that were probably historical characters are very poorly attested outside of these lists, most known only as names. After Uruk ruled for some time, kingship transferred by heavenly decree over to the city of Ur. Then Awan shows up, interesting as it is not culturally Sumerian at all, but rather an Elamite dynasty from south Iran. Is this city being included just because they were prominent, or did Elamites conquer Sumer for a few generations? The evidence is too sketchy to say either way. It is the northern city of Kish that takes over after that, then the city of Hamazi, and then again to Uruk. It's Enshat Kushana who's given credit here for seizing the throne by force, and is listed as having conquered a number of prominent cities and having taken kingship over all of Sumer. It's possible that this is the first man to actually rule over the entirety of Lower Mesopotamia, assuming you don't credit the idea that Gilgamesh, or perhaps even some forgotten previous ruler, was the first to accomplish this. That said, if he did establish himself as true regional king, that kingdom would prove to be short-lived, for with his successor we see in the historical record another oddity. Around the year 2500 BCE, the city of Lagash shows up in the historical record in a big way. For about a century, we have actual historical documents written by the Lagashite kings, telling of their policies, their accomplishments, and their battles. Despite this, not a one of these kings shows up anywhere in the kings list, one more oddity in our primary source for the era. In any case, the rich history of Lagash will kick off our more in-depth historical discussion in about a dozen episodes, so you can look forward to those. After Uruk's second dynasty, Ur takes over again, with a few more obscure rulers, then a city called Adab, ruled by a king named Lugal Anemundu. Here, too, is a man with a claim to be the world's first great empire builder, with fragmentary claims of having conquered all of Mesopotamia, all the way to the Zagros Mountains of the Northeast, the Elamites of southern Iran, and even out to the land of Cedars, the Mediterranean coast of modern-day Syria and Lebanon. Again, though, many suspect that he may never have existed, or never did as much as is ascribed to him. In any case, his supposed empire falls apart after a single generation. Curiously, however, after the brief empire of lugal Anemundu, the king's list tells us about a dynasty of a city called Mari, which also has an interesting history all of its own, but is pretty far outside what we usually think of as Mesopotamia, located at the north end of the Euphrates River in modern-day Syria. Did the circumstances of Lugal-Animundu's conquests allow for power to transition to this northern city? Did Mari manage a great conquest in a power vacuum left behind by Lugal-Animundu's death? Or is this final empire mostly a fiction, and Mari's more significant kings are just inserted into the list by later writers who are just trying to acknowledge that, yeah, they had some civilization way up north... It's unknowable without quite a bit more information coming to light. Whatever the case, the 24th century BCE may have been a somewhat unsettled period for Sumer. Perhaps an empire has collapsed, or perhaps there's been a foreign occupation, and for sure there's some other conflict going on, because here we have something of historical oddity yet again the first and only reigning queen of Sumer and Akkad, Kubaba of Kish, makes her brief appearance in the historical record. Described as a tavern-keeper, or in some translations, a tavern-wench, she's said to have ruled for a hundred years and brought prosperity to the city of Kish. There is a tale that she provided food to the god Marduk during a time of chaos, And was thus given divine favor, but this is almost certainly a much later addition, since if she ruled sometime in the 2300s, it's still over 500 years before Marduk, later famous as the patron god of Babylon, is relevant to anyone this far south. From very little evidence, much is speculated about Kubaba. Perhaps the most likely scenario is that she came from a family who managed a tavern and managed to catch the eye of the king of Kish, a common woman rising into nobility through marriage. Upon the king's death, she possessed the cunning and charisma necessary to not only hold on to her position in a deeply patriarchal society, but also to make firm the foundations of the city and ensure her place in the future king's lists. Of course, With such a significant figure about whom so little is known, you'll get people who praise her as a feminist icon, leveraging a successful tavern-managing career into a kingship, all the way to people on the other end who will deny that Kubaba was even a woman, rather speculating that it was a male ruler who was slandered by later generations, not just as a woman, but as the lowest sort of woman, a common tavern prostitute. Whatever the case, the King's List says that kingship was then taken to the city of Akshak, though we know from other historical evidence that Kubaba ruled concurrently with some of the kings of Akshak. So here, too, we know that the apparently linear nature of the King's List is deceptive. The King's List, and our brief understanding of the very earliest period of Mesopotamian history, ends here with a blatant error. The fourth dynasty of Kish is listed as the next to take over from Akshak, and the second of the eight kings of this dynasty is listed as Urzababa. In fact, as we'll see in future episodes, Urzababa is the final king of the early dynastic period. The others, if they existed at all, lived either before or concurrently with the Kishite ruler whom the gods most deeply despised. Alternately, they were subject kings under the later Akkadian Empire. And, of course, the third dynasty of Urk, placed over 50 years after Urzababa, features Lugulzeghese, another fellow we will be encountering at the dawn of the Akkadian period. Now, we've picked up quite a lot of names here at the end, but don't worry... None of them are super important, and we'll be encountering the few that matter as we move back through history in later episodes. The point of this episode is to set a bit of factual foundation before we go back to the year 2700 and start making our way more thoroughly through the cultural landscape of early dynastic Sumer. Hopefully, with these first few introductory episodes, you're ready to dive into the meaty heart of ancient Mesopotamian history and myth, combined into one from the very beginning of the written record. Next time, on episode three, we will be beginning the Epic of Gilgamesh, a tale that has stood the test of time for very good reasons, an exploration of heroism, the gods, and immortality. Do keep in mind, though, that the project of re-recording early episodes ends here, and so the audio quality will be dropping off a bit as we go forward. Rest assured that it will be improving soon enough, and I hope you enjoy your journey as you join us next time for the Epic of Gilgamesh and in future episodes for our journey through the history and myth of ancient Mesopotamia. Thank you for listening.